This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, today, Pastor Kearns, we are continuing with our study of the formula of Concord. And as promised, we are uh, stopping at the next topic, or the very first topic really listed, although um, the whole introduction kind of serves as a, um, a topic on how to approach Scripture. Uh, this one actually gets into a specific teaching, and the specific teaching is the teaching on original sin. And um, the issues for the Lutheran confessors were twofold, really. Uh, back in 1530, with the Augsburg Confession, it was to assert that there actually is something known as original sin and that it does have an effect on human nature. When we get to the formula of Concord, the issue is entirely different. Remember, this is an internal battle inside of uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church. And one theologian by the name of Matthias Illyricus Flaccius had uh, said in protecting original sin, in other words, in protecting the teaching of original sin, that the very nature of the human being was sin. And I've heard something in uh, evangelical talk uh, from running into evangelicals, Pastor Kearns, a term that is foreign to me. Um, it's called sin nature. They, they, it, so Lutheran talks about original sin, inherited sin, uh, the flesh, the sinful nature, the uh, old Adam, uh, but they don't use the term sin nature. And I wonder if there's anything inside of that particular terminology that, that says something different from what Lutherans mean. Well, it doesn't. The very first theological book that I ever read, I was 18 years old, and I was given uh, Ryrie's Basic Theology, and uh, really just devoured this book. And uh, let's see, on page 218, under the heading, The Inheritance of Sin, it says, theologians have used several labels to describe this concept, that be the concept of original sin, which is what we're talking about. One, some call it inherited sin. This emphasizes the truth that all people inherit this sinful state from their parents and their parents from their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Two, others call it the sin nature, and that's the word you're asking about, which focuses on the fact that sin has corrupted our entire nature. The term, open quote, sin nature, close quote, provides a clear contrast between that root nature and its fruits, which are particular acts of sin. And then finally, number three, still others prefer the term original sin, which is the way that the confessions word it, because Adam's original sin produced that moral corruption of nature, which was transmitted by inheritance to each succeeding generation. So let's speak about the relevance of, of original sin. This is one of these uh, teachings that seems to be sort of uh, on the fringe, right? It's not, did Jesus die? It's not, did Jesus rise again from the dead? It's not, did Jesus have a virgin mother? It's really one of these teachings of Scripture that can easily become relegated to the background as, as if it were background noise. Um, but get this one wrong, and you start going kittywampus, don't you? So let's talk a little bit about the ways in which in modern evangelicalism we see the cattywampus uh, direction that uh, you can go in if you don't have a robust understanding of uh, original sin. It is tied to justification, 
It's also tied to sanctification. So, so that's really the uh, dealing with the, the problem of what original sin does in the life of a Christian after he has been converted uh, to Christ. And prior to, I think there's really huge problems. You know, if we are truly dead in trespasses and sins, as St. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, it is beyond our powers to make a decision for Jesus or to accept the Lord Jesus into our life. And yet, all of evangelical preaching is really predicated upon this decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. Decision theology, yes. And if we can sharpen our evangelical appeals, if we can make our arguments uh, spot on where people will actually see how good Jesus is and the gospel is, then they'll decide for Jesus. Good. It, it is really what it is, is virtuous people making a virtuous decision for the ultimately virtuous one. Uh, and it's, there's absolutely no recognition of, of human corruption in that whole scenario. Right. Even though the Bible is very clear that dead men don't make decisions. Dead men don't do this because they're dead. They're dead. Paralyzed people don't walk right? Except for by the word of God. Sinners don't get rid of their own sins, except for when God says, I forgive you all your sins. Lazarus doesn't come forth from the grave until right. he's called. Right, exactly. We've got all of these things in the in the scriptures that, that sort of lay out the way that the Lord interacts with his fallen creatures. And I think it's very interesting, and I know that we'll get into this with the uh, second article on free will more so than on original sin, even though they connect. You've got a dead man, Necros, I mean, like really dead, stick a stick in him, you know, stuff oozes out. That's how dead he is. Christ calls him. He is vivified. He rises, so to speak. It's easy for one to think that he made that decision. You're, you're saying, I made this decision after you've risen. Right, and, and this does get into the will. The will is actually converted. And, and so the will, it's not Jesus believing for you. It's you believing in Jesus, uh, but entirely at the Lord's behest, right? And so uh, as you experience it, it does, it can feel as, as if you have accepted the Lord Jesus or asked him into your heart or uh, whatever the case might be. But as soon as you have faith in him, that's the conversion, then what do you actually do? You say, Lord Jesus, be my God. Yeah, but the scripture is very clear about this too, in that no one may boast. No one can say, I found Jesus, I accepted Jesus. They can't do that because God is the one who moves over the, you know, Ezekiel's dry bones, so to speak. Right, right. Good. Let's take a look at the first of the Lutheran confessions on this, just to lay the groundwork and uh, to see, again, how biblical this teaching is. I'm reading from the Augsburg Confession, Article 2, and this is what is written there. Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, Romans 5.12, all who are naturally born are born with sin, Psalm 51.5, that is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin, called concupiscence. Concupiscence is a disease and original vice that 
is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit, John 3, 5. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. Let's start with that paragraph three there, right? Our churches condemn the Pelagians. I mean, this is really what we're talking about, isn't it? When we're talking about the American evangelical conception of original sin, it's just like, um, it's like, oh yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I've got something going on in here and there is some virtue. And so I can virtuously make my virtuous decision for the only virtuous one. Oh, yeah. I mean, most evangelicals would never call themselves Pelagian. They would never see themselves as... As ancient heretics? Right. But let's lay this out here. This problem has been solved in the church definitively since the time of St. Augustine the Greater. Uh, So since the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. Orthodox theology from that point on, cannot say that human powers can do anything to save themselves. And yet, this is the drumbeat that we hear from the stages of evangelical churches. And sadly, it's taught at evangelical seminaries. I mean, you would think that the professors at the seminaries would call out Pelagianism for what it is, thus teaching their future pastors to not go down this road. Going back to my Ryrie's theological book, it gives a description of Pelagianism. It says this, Pelagius, a monk from Britain who preached in Rome around A.D. 400, believed that since God would not command anything which was not possible, And that since he has commanded men to be holy, everyone, therefore, can live a life that is free from sin. He taught that man was created neutral, neither sinful nor holy, and with the capacity and will to choose freely either to sin or to do good. Everyone is born in the same condition as Adam before the fall. Only now... Man has before him Adam's bad example, but Adam in no way transmitted a sin nature or the guilt of his sin to his posterity. Man has a will that is free, and sin comes from the separate acts of man's will. Man is also free to do good works, and all of his good deeds come from the unassisted capabilities of his human nature. Thus, Pelagianism exaggerates the merits of work and their efficacy in salvation. Now, gratefully, in the same theological treatise, we have an explanation of semi-Pelagianism. Pelagius' teaching was opposed by his contemporary, Augustine, who emphasized man's total inability to achieve righteousness and, therefore, his need for sovereign grace alone. Semi-Pelagianism is a mediating position between Augustinianism, with its strong emphasis on predestination and man's inability, and Pelagianism, with its insistence on man's complete ability. Semi-Pelagians teach that man retains a measure of freedom 
by which he can cooperate with the grace of God. Man's will has been weakened and his nature affected by the fall, but he is not totally depraved. In regeneration, man chooses God who then adds his grace. So the semi-Pelagian, it's a weaker Pelagianism. So, so, the, so full-blown Pelagianism says that a human being, apart from any contact with God, can live a God-pleasing, virtuous life. Semi-Pelagianism teaches that, well, you know, there is virtue there, uh, but but it really isn't sort of kicked off, kick-started, until you come into contact with the divinity. So this is the divine spark that you hear about in liberal churches? Well, it, which is amazing to me. I mean, you hear about it in liberal churches, but it was, it was taught, the scintilla was a major teaching of late medieval theology that was roundly rejected by Luther and Calvin and all these other guys. How it has crept back into mainline Protestantism is sort of beyond me. So the churches that have an altar call, even though they have no altar, they are Pelagian. Or semi-Pelagian. Or semi-Pelagian. But both are heretical. Both are heretical. And Melanchthon, in, in what I just read, gives the reason for this. I mean, this is so interesting. It says that when you do that, when you deny the original depravity that we've inherited from Adam, the glory of Christ's merits and benefits is obscured. Really, this goes to the question, uh, the way that Melanchthon's putting it here. Did Jesus do it all for you, or did he not? If he did it all, then what can you do to sort of get on Team Jesus? Nothing. What credit can you have? None. That's if he did it all. But if he didn't quite do it all then you can participate, and what you're saying is that it was not the all-availing sacrifice for sin that the scriptures call it. So it's synergism. Correct. It's you and God working together for your own salvation. Good, yeah. So semi-Pelagianism is really sort of synergistic. So uh, it's syn in Greek, which is with, and ergazdo, my, which means to work. So it's working with God. That's what synergism is. When you hear that word, it's a bad word. You, you, um, and uh, when you hear people talking about cooperating with God, at least prior to the conversion, uh, that's, uh, that's verboten. Monergism, which is uh, just the opposite, it is you know, one is working and the one is not you, but it's God. We as Lutherans would say we believe God is the worker, man is necros. Correct. This is how God works with his human creatures all the way through. Just like Adam. I mean, Adam, even though he made Adam, he needed that breath of life to come into him for him to, to get up and move around. Correct. But even, even though he made Adam, he made Adam. That's the point. There was no Adam. Adam didn't create himself. Right. He didn't emerge from an amoeba. So that was monergistic. Correct. Not only his creation, but his vivification, so to speak. And even our sanctification is in so many ways uh, monergistic. The impulses that you feel to lead a godly life didn't emerge from inside of Pastor Kearns. They emerged from the work of the Holy Spirit. But wouldn't you say that to some degree our sanctification is synergistic? Yes, yes. We read the command. The command is... 
you should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You've got said circumstance that you that you need to do this, and you think, okay, this is what God's calling me to do. This is what I'm going to do by the power of the Holy Spirit or by God's grace. Right. And again, the interesting thing is that's your converted will assenting to uh, the divine word. And only the converted will can assent to the divine word. So if someone were listening to us and they attend a church where they're, you know, the, the music starts to play right as the pastor is finishing and, you know, there's this appeal for the gospel. And even though we've been talking about how to make friends, uh, somehow or another, we're going to talk about Jesus being the best friend of all. And if you've never accepted Jesus, then you need to uh, raise your hand. We've talked about earlier, beliefs dictate behavior. So this behavior is symptomatic of a belief, and the belief is you can decide, and we can create an atmosphere to make it a little bit easier for you to decide. And the irony of it is that when the person puts up his hand to say, I am deciding for the Lord Jesus, Jesus has already done his work prior to that. So there, there is no such thing. I mean, this is the, the, the really interesting thing. There is no such thing as a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian believer in God, in Jesus. They might think that they're Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, but if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ— this was entirely monergistic. It was done entirely by God. Which is good news. You know, when you say that, I think about baptism, the fact that the pastor who baptized me, he didn't believe what the scriptures actually say about baptism. Well, praise be to God that it still took because it was a valid baptism. God did the work in baptism, even though uh, the pastor that I was baptized by in the church in which I was raised in, they didn't believe the orthodox teaching of baptism. That, isn't that interesting? That's a great example of the same exact thing. You know, let's take a look at these scriptures here. Um, two scriptures are cited by the author of the Augsburg Confession. One is Romans 5.12, and therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here uh, is, the, is the talking of the um, heredity of, of sin. So everybody's aware of Adam's first sin. And it's always Adam's sin. But the question is, okay, so Adam sinned, does that screw up my life as well? The answer that Paul gives is yes. Is absolutely yes. <laughs> it's, it's as if it's wired into our DNA. And so just as you have facial features from your mom and dad, so do you also have what they carried in them, their, their sin. Another one that I think is really great uh, that's pointed to here is Psalm 51.5. This is David speaking, and he says, Behold, I was brought forth with iniquity, and with sin did my mother conceive me. Oftentimes, that's translated, uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, um, which is a kind of a unfortunate way of handling the Hebrew there. The, the Hebrew preposition is the preposition buh, B means in most times, but it also means with. Uh, so it's a with of accompaniment. So I, I actually prefer to take it as with here. I mean, was was David, was his mother sinning when she conceived him? I mean, th this is what it would seem to be saying if, if you say, in sin did my mother conceive me. 
but what if what if it says I with iniquity was brought forth and my mother conceived me with sin which is a better way to read the passage and the way that it's being understood at least by the confessions what you're saying here reminds me of the previous episode I remember hearing this translated that verse translated as being uh, because of what you just said about with uh, as opposed to in uh, that David David's mother she got it on with some other man and this is why David was out in the field when Samuel came all the legitimate sons of Jesse came in the love child he's out in the field man you hear something like that and you go wow but the problem is is that there's nothing in scripture to, that, to support that correct and Occam's razor uh, would argue against it wouldn't it right right the simplest answer Just exactly but that's a very uh, sophisticated attempt to walk around the clear scriptures as they teach the teaching of original sin. And it's interesting, too, how something like that can stick in your head. And the only thing that shakes it is, say, like the confessions. The confessions come along and they say, no, this scripture speaks of this inherited corruption which came forth from the fall, i.e. Adam. Good. And so, again, confessions as guardrails, right? Uh, As a very important witness so that you don't have to constantly be rethinking the the biblical um, teachings all the time and coming to erroneous conclusions based upon a very small amount of evidence. Well, I'm going to flip ahead now to to the actual formula of Concord and... Um, I want to read what the issue is there because I, I think it's it'll be illuminating. So this is the epitome, uh, Article 1, Paragraph 1. Is original sin really, without any distinction, a person's corrupt nature, substance, and essence? Is it the chief and greater part of his essence, i.e. the rational soul itself and its highest state and powers? Or even... After the fall, is there a distinction between original sin and a person's substance, nature, essence, body, and soul, so that the nature itself is one thing and original sin is another, which belongs to the corrupt nature and corrupts the nature? I think oftentimes people hear Lutherans and Calvinists talk about, Calvinists talk about total depravity, Lutherans talk about original sin, as hearing that the human being, the very nature of the human being is garbage, entirely garbage. And that's not what the scriptures teach, nor is it what the Lutherans teach. I don't even think the Calvinists teach this. And and there's an important distinction to be maintained here. Um, if we say that the human nature is itself sin, who created you, Pastor Kearns? Well, God. God. So who becomes the author of sin? Then God does. Then God does. Now, that's a philosophical approach to the whole thing, but the question is whether the the scriptural witness bears that out. So people object to this teaching uh, in Lutheranism, I think, on this basis that if you say human beings have original sin, what you're actually saying is that their nature is sin— and then what you're saying is that God is the author of sin, and they won't countenance that. That would be an orthodox position. But what do the scriptures actually teach? Well, they teach that there is a distinction. 
And so, you know, let's take a look at the positive side of things. Number four in the epitome, it says, God created the body and soul of Adam and Eve before the fall, but he also created our bodies and souls after the fall. Even though they are corrupt, God still acknowledges them as his work, as it is written in Job 10.8, your hands fashioned and made me. And then they've got uh, just a barrage of scriptural citations. Deuteronomy 32.18, Isaiah 45, 9-10. Isaiah 54, 5, Isaiah 64, 8, Acts 17, 28, Psalm 139, 14, Ecclesiastes 12, 1. That's how a Lutheran does theology. It's backed up by the scriptures. So very briefly, there are two types of creation we've taught the kids in catechesis. And so when you're talking about Adam and Eve, they were formed under one type of creation. You and I were formed under a different type of creation. I mean, maybe... Different type is not the right word, but it is. Uh, it falls under a different category. It's a different phase. Okay. Can we say that? Yeah. So we have two phases of God's creating. One is the creatio prima, the first creation. Which would be Adam and Eve. Right. And then the second one is what the dogmaticians call the creatio continua, the, con- the ongoing creation. And I guess where these two overlap is the fact that God is still involved in both. Heavily involved. Yeah, so one is not really lesser than the other. It's just a different phase. In the first creation, he uses the means of his word. In the second creation, he uses the means of his word together with the very created order. Well, wouldn't you say, though, that in the beginning uh, with that first, there was dust? Okay, good. So with Adam. Right. Right. So it's his word and... That which he had already created, whereas in the second... His word is still the word, be fruitful and multiply. This animates the entire reproductive system in the whole world. So that word is still... I mean, as long as children are born and bugs have babies... um, It's performative. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do and what he said it would do. Correct. So, again, I think your, your point is well taken, that the creation of Adam was God's word with means, and our creation is God's word with means, uh, just in a slightly different phrasing. So, the point is, though, that God is the creator of our human nature, and what God creates isn't evil, it's corrupted, but it's not evil. Yeah, I'm sure Charlie Manson, I'm sure he likes puppies. He still has compassion at some on, level. <laughs> on some level. Right. Which is which is the good in the good. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. That can still be drawn back to to its the source of its creation. Good. Right. So can a can a mother, an unbelieving Hindu mother, love her child? Of course. Sure. Even yeah. sacrifice her own life. Right. Uh, and that's the good. Uh, the good creation, the good of the creation. Let me go on and read a little bit more here, though. This is, again, uh, an argument for distinguishing between human nature and the corruption that affects it. Furthermore, God's Son has received this human nature, but without sin. Okay, so let's just pause there. Could the very person of Jesus be sinful? The answer is no. Uh, because he's all holy. And so um, this is a, a good, interesting, you know, 
comment. Well, and on top of that, this that one sentence right there, that points us to the fact that this is the second atom, that the first atom was not made with uh, a sinful nature. He was right. human nature without sin. So this is the heinousness of the fall, is that you had a human nature, i.e. Adam, without sin, who sins. And brought sin into the world, affected all the world. So when the second Adam comes, though, to be the second Adam, he can't have sin. He can't, even though he is tempted, even though the devil takes him to, to the pinnacle of the temple. This is how breathtaking that whole temptation narrative is, that if Jesus, without a sin nature, would have done exactly what Adam did, our redemption would be done it's, and lost. You can't even fathom how bad that would have been. Yes, we would be without hope. We'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins and hell-bound. Right. Yeah. The authors go on. It says, Therefore he did not, he, the Son of God, did not receive a foreign nature, but our own flesh in the unity of his person. That is, he didn't, he didn't receive another sort of human nature. He just received human nature. In this way, he has become our true brother. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. So the nature that Jesus took on, if he had taken on, uh, and actually this sort of goes to uh, Anselm's uh, Cor Deus Homo, right? Why was God made a man? In that, he says uh, that if he had assumed the nature of an ass, he would have redeemed the asses. But he assumed human nature. He redeems humans. In the same way, and this is really great here. Christ redeemed human nature as his work, sanctifies it, raises it from the dead, and gloriously adorns it as his work. But original sin he has not created, received, redeemed, or sanctified. He will not raise it, adorn it, or save it in the elect. In the blessed resurrection, original sin will be entirely destroyed. That's a really great line of thinking right there, that if we are to be raised incorruptible, and if we are to be raised in this body, as Job says, right, with these my eyes I shall see God, uh, then the human nature itself cannot be original sin. They are not coterminous. It's just deeply affected by original sin. So original sin has affected all. Original sin will be eradicated in all at the last day. In all believers. But between the point of which we are redeemed. When we are converted. Right. Okay. To the point where we die, we still live with these effects of this original sin. Correct. It has been, uh, been proleptically put to death. It's put to death as a promise for us. So the power of it is broken. Right. Its effects are broken. It cannot condemn us anymore. And this is where the scripture would speak about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, yep. Uh, but, but then you also have Paul's struggles that he talks about in Romans chapter 7. The good that I would, that do I not do, and the evil that I would not, that do I do. Um, that is because of the continuity 
of the of original sin uh, adhering to the nature of the human being even after being brought to faith in Christ but we would not call that original sin one precedes the other it's because of original sin that there is that actual, I do actual sin. sins that's correct so I do actual sins but Paul talks about the source of that and uh, he sees that in his flesh there dwells no good well what is he talking about he's talking about the old nature affected entirely by original sin it's a will that simply cannot as you look at it cannot withstand the impulse to sin in fact it is the impulse to sin so someone who would say because of what christ has done and because of someone's belief in that the original sin is now been wiped away what would be the cause of human sin if, if original, original sin. sin were gone there would be no cause uh, if original sin were gone if the lack of trust in God were restored to trust in God if the lack of love for God were restored as full love for God if the lack of fear for God were restored as full fear for God you could withstand the temptations of the world and the devil just fine but it hasn't been so a dog barks because he is a dog and we sin because we're sinners and this original sin though the power of it has been broken what do you what would you say we still affected by we're it. still affected right. by it yeah and so i i loved how you put that the, a dog barks because it's a dog and we sin because we are sinners you got to flip that around to get to the untruth of it, right? It's not that what makes a dog a dog is that it barks. And it's not that what makes a sinner a sinner that he sins. It's the fact that he is a sinner, therefore he sins. A dog barks. Uh, he is a dog, therefore he barks. <clears throat> That's really important. So, so, so this uh, this modern notion, right, that you that you alluded to earlier on, that that somehow or other you can be done with your sin uh, after you've been converted to Christianity doesn't square with the biblical record. It would be wonderful if that were the case, uh, but what it does is it um, misunderstands these proleptic promises of God uh, as applying um, in this present life. Well, take a listen to this. My friends, I think that most of us in this room have had Christianity imposed upon us. And many of us have the scars to show for it. I'm talking about the way of Christianity that came about centuries after Jesus had died. And that's when the term original sin came into being. In our weekly epistle newsletter this week, I shared with you a quote from the theologian Matthew Fox. And this is what he said. Jesus never heard of original sin. So it's strange to run a church supposedly on the behalf of Jesus when one of its main dogmatic tenets, original sin, never 
All right, so I think they were having some microphone issues there. So I just wanted to make sure, Pastor Bruss, you heard this from this theologian by the name of Matthew Fox. Not sure who he is. Nor I. But this is what he says. Jesus never heard of original sin. So it's strange to run a church supposedly on the behalf of Jesus when one of its main dogmatic tenets, original sin, never occurred to Jesus. Now, the microphone issues are going to persist, but this is what he's going to say in his next statement. He's going to walk away from the lectern at this point, and now this is not Matthew Fox that he's quoting, but this is what this pastor is saying. The term original sin appears nowhere in the New Testament. Jesus didn't believe in original sin, and neither should we. Didn't believe in original sin, and neither should we. Jesus' message was the complete opposite. He said, you are sons and daughters of God. You are the light of the world. The kingdom of heaven dwells within you. Scripture tells us we're made in the image and likeness of God, that God delights in us, and that we are holy and perfect in God's sight. Does that sound to you like we're broken and in need of fixing? When God created everything, God looked at it and said it was good. Why would God create something bad? It doesn't make sense. We've been indoctrinated to think that we're sinful, bad, unworthy, flawed, in need of fixing, lacking in some way. Jesus is saying, turn your mind around. Change your thinking. You are the light of the world. That's who you are. That's the truth of your being. The truth of your being is that you are holy and perfect in God's sight. Holy means whole. You are whole and you are perfect in God's sight. That was what Jesus was trying to teach. And the Christian church turned it around because they wanted to control people. Jesus wanted to free people. I would just want to ask this pastor uh, if he plans on dying any day uh, when he's making the assertion that he's not broken. Uh, this is uh, just a, a, an unbelievable assertion. Or even if he sins. Or even if he sins at all. Does he sin at all? Would be a, Yes, right. Has he ever been offended uh, by anybody who's sinned against him? All of these things have to come into the... Uh, just and, and of course, now these are just purely apologetic responses to what he's saying, right? We can point to things in our daily life that talk that talk about our brokenness. Could he get cancer? Could he break a leg? Well, guess what? All of these things are part of a fallen world, a world that's not running the way that God intended it to run. So a, a couple things that are just, I mean, just blow me away here. Uh, he's talking about, uh, he's drawing all this stuff from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. 
And Jesus is talking there to people who are believers in Christ. So number one, it is the believer in Christ who is utterly pleasing to God uh, through the blood and merit of Jesus. That's point number one. So let's just dispense with that sort of silly argument. Um, argument number two is this, that he would be pitting, is he not pitting the word of Jesus against the, word, the rest of God's holy word? And so he would have to say that actually the teaching of original sin isn't Jesus's fault. It's actually Paul's fault because Paul in Romans 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man and because of sin, death, and therefore a death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so there we get the very clear teaching uh, propositionally of original sin. Does Paul use the word original sin? No, original sin is an English nomenclature for uh, what the Germans call, and the Latin, the, the Latin theologians call, inherited sin. Is Paul teaching inherited sin in Romans 5? He absolutely is. The third point that I would make is that he's gone uh, cherry-picking through what Jesus has, has told us. When Jesus talks about where murders and lusts and adulteries and uh, hatred comes from, he doesn't say that it comes from your neighbor has a nice apple tree and the apple tree has caused you to lust after it. He doesn't say that uh, a beautiful woman is the cause of a person's lust. And he doesn't say that a jerky person is the cause of your hatred. He says these things come out of the heart. And so Jesus himself teaches that every human being, I mean, who has not experienced lust and hatred and other things like that, every human being uh, is subject to the inherited sin that they've gotten from Adam. This guy's a liar. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even to go to Genesis 1 and say that before original sin, it was all good, very good. Bro, just read one more chapter here. <laughs> exactly. Just one more chapter. Yeah. And there's just no no division between law and gospel here. So he's reading, he's reading these gospel passages in the in the Sermon on the Mount, as if they are decrees emanating from God's law. That's an interesting law-gospel mixture, isn't it? And, and it's highly problematic. Well, to blow you away even more, at the end of his homily, the people clap. He puts his hands together in a prayer-like motion, bows, and says, Namaste. What does namaste mean? Namaste means I bow to the God within you. Wow. So it's like some, is it a Buddhist thing or something like that? It's what a yogi would say at the end of your yoga session. Really? Wow. Yeah. So this is not Christianity in any sense. uh, let's, Let's talk about that. It's not, it's certainly not the Christianity after Christ. And what we're also saying is it's not the Christianity that Jesus himself taught, nor is it the Christianity that Moses taught in his first book of Genesis. But this stuff is out there. Honestly, it took me quite a bit of time to find somebody with any sort of chops speaking against original sin. Most of the stuff, at least on YouTube, that I found was some guy in his closet talking about it. 
somebody that you really wouldn't listen to that has no sort of following. So when you say chops, what you mean is somebody who's apparently qualified to be talking about original or, sin. Or at least influential. Mm-hmm. You might find original sin spoken against in the main lines, but even then, it seems that this is a fully accepted doctrine within Christianity. And that most, I mean, like I even got out uh, several different um, theological books here just as I was preparing for our time together. They they make no bones about it. Okay, so so it is in Christianity. It's maybe, um, you know, the, the finer point to put on this would be that, yes, most versions of Christianity will teach something about original sin. Well, even this Matthew Fox guy, you know, even he says when one of its main dogmatic tenets, original sin, never even occurred to Jesus. I mean, at least he's acknowledging the fact that within Christianity, uh, it is a main... Good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Tenet. Right. So so it's all over the place. It's maybe not taught properly in every in every place that we can find it. So we talked about Roman Catholicism. And um, semi-Pelagianism. Sure. Yep. Uh, and the, the lie to which the teaching is put when you place the onus for conversion on the sinner rather than upon uh, God, the Holy Spirit, working through his word and sacrament. Um, so those are all ways in which the fullness of the biblical teaching is gets its wings clipped. But as a matter of fact, yeah, who can think of a of a denomination or a theological strand besides Pelagianism that doesn't countenance some form of original sin? So at the end of all of this, uh, the writers make a really, really helpful uh, set of distinctions, and they this is what they say. This distinction can easily be discerned between A, the corrupt nature, B, the corruption which infects the nature, and C, the corruption by which the nature became corrupt. And so what we have is really three things when we're talking about the sinful human nature. We have the nature itself, on the one hand, which is good and created by God. We've got the corruption that's inside of it, uh, which is its uh, lack of faith and trust and love toward God. And then we've got the thing that actually corrupted it. Uh, And that thing that corrupted it is what we inherited from our parents all the way back on down to Adam. Now, that helps us get into what the nature of this corruption actually is. And the authors go on and say this. On the other hand, we believe, teach, and confess that original sin is not a minor corruption. Now, that had been the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They they were semi-Pelagians and uh, were rightly taken to task for this. And actually, I think that view is alive and well in American evangelicalism, that it's just a minor corruption and you, the v- virtuous person, make the virtuous choice to attach yourself to the only virtuous one. That virtue is unavailable in a truly corrupt human being. It is so deep a corruption of human nature that nothing healthy or uncorrupt remains in man's body or soul in his outward or inward powers. And that's Romans three ten to 12. And the church sings, through Adam's fall, is all corrupt, nature and essence human. And the Calvinists would just simply sum this up, as you said before, by saying 
man's depravity is total. Total depravity. What it means is that we have weakness of mental faculties. It means that we have physical weakness. Those are the probably the easiest ways in which we can see it. But this is going to go on and talk about something that's hidden even deeper. The damage cannot be fully described, Psalm 19.12. And I think that's uh, where, uh, who can discern his sins. It cannot be understood by reason, but only from God's word. Now, let's just pause here. This is, this is tremendous. You can know your own frailty because you can't pole vault 20 feet, right? That's your frailty. That's your human frailty. And you can say, look, yeah, that's, that's my corruption. Uh, Adam, maybe he could have pole vaulted 21 feet or whatever the case might be. Uh, you might know that um, yeah, as you compare yourself to other people, I do this all the time and say, wow, you know, I wish I had that guy's brains or something like that. Uh, so we can see these things. There, there are some observable things, but the depth of the corruption is just totally impossible to get at unless it's revealed by God's word. We affirm that no one but God alone can separate human nature and this corruption of human nature from each other. This will fully come to pass through death in the blessed resurrection. So we still have the flesh around us. It's still corrupting us. It's still making us sin today. This is why, um, according to Romans 6, we live a life of repentance uh, constantly. At that time, our nature, which we now bear, will rise and live eternally without original sin and be separated and divided from it. As it is written in Job 19:26 to 27, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold. So what is redeemed in the uh, resurrection, what is saved, is God's creature, uh, the, the good creature that he created. What is lost is the corruption of that nature through original sin. I would say, as I thumb through Schaefer and Walvard's major Bible themes, I mean, this was a... This was a, a go-to book. This was the layman's Bible for us Reformed guys. And you don't, unfortunately, have it until chapter 26, but it still is man and his fall, and still gratefully attest to the fact that depravity is total, resulting in the fact that nobody can even reason their way to Christ, just like the Lutheran confessions say. And it also says that we still live with the effects of that fall. I mean, so my point is, even when I was looking into the Lutheran distinctives, I mean, you get into it and you think, how far off am I when we straighten out our heterodoxy? And gratefully, you know, I looked at this and thought, okay, at least I was taught right on this one. This, this level is golden. Uh, but unfortunately, as we've talked before, it, it bleeds over into other things. Yes, and you can see how the evangelical mindset is predicated upon this decision for Christ. So there's a huge gap between biblical teaching on original sin and what it does, what the nature of its corruption is, and the teaching that you can make a decision for Christ. What has to happen is one or the other has to go out the door. And what American evangelicals chose to do is to keep the one that works as far as they experience. 
uh, as you were talking earlier. Craft your altar calls more carefully. Uh, appeal to the virtuous so that the, the virtuous choice is made and so on. That is kept in play. And so automatically it has to be the case that this corruption of original sin is is out the window. It might be in the in the uh, doctrinal in your doctrinal back pocket, but you don't trot it out because it actually turns out to be pretty inconvenient for what you're trying to do. Well, if you're trying to grow the church and you can make appeals where people actually respond to it, especially emotional appeals, how does trotting out the doctrine of original sin going to flub that up? Yeah, it's not going to work very well. You know, this Sunday um, in the lectionary, uh, it's Trinity Sunday, and the the scripture passage is Nicodemus and Jesus uh, in John chapter 3. I mean, original sin is taught so clearly here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it will get talked about in the sermon. It has to be talked about. It's in the text. Original sin. Original sin. It just has to be addressed. Uh, And there's probably a notion that Look, this is Debbie Downer stuff. The people don't really need to know it uh, among the American evangelicals. And so I'll just skip over it. But that's an, a most arrogant sort of perspective. Um, by that criterion, anything that rubs me wrong in the scriptures, I don't need to talk about and just focus on the stuff that I actually really like. But all of this stuff has been revealed for the well-being of the church, and it must be talked about. You touched on Roman Catholic teaching regarding original sin. Could you explain a little more what baptism and the sacerdotal duties, how that mitigates original sin? Roman Catholic theology taught that original sin was just a diminution of of spiritual powers. It wasn't a, you weren't dead in trespasses and sins. They had just sort of been, your spiritual powers had just sort of been diminished. I mean, that's what it was. So it's possible in a Roman Catholic system for Socrates to be saved uh, because here we have a guy who purportedly has not as diminished of spiritual powers as other people. So in Roman Catholic theology, Baptism erases original sin only. It's not an application of Christ's death for other sins. So it wipes the slate clean, puts you at kind of neutral territory. You're not either a saint or a sinner. You're in neutral territory. And it's, it's as if it's put your right foot on the bottom rung of the ladder and you start to climb. Your sins, of course, will knock you down. A few rungs and so what you've got to do is um, keep climbing through two things good works which have a grace attached to them and sacramental grace which sort of fills up and and there, there are measures right I mean it's not like when you get the sacramental grace of the Eucharist it's the whole kit and caboodle it's maybe two rungs worth uh, that you've fallen down the last couple of weeks That's the Roman Catholic system. But even then, uh, with uh, starting at the neutral territory and, you know, uh, two steps forward, three steps back, what have you, through life, one still gets to uh, enjoy the the beauties when they die of 
purgatory. Right. Like it, it's still none of those things was still good enough to purge the sin out of one's life. Right. And this is where the beauty of the work of Christ comes in and why they're so, uh, when what we read first from the apology is so salient. Anything that diminishes the work of Christ diminishes his glory and the glory of his redemption. And to teach something other than the scriptures teach on original sin simply diminishes what Christ has done. So if we were to sum it up, we would say that for the Roman Catholic, baptism erases original sin. Is that what you said? That's correct. And for the Lutheran, baptism does not erase original sin. That's really the source of all of our actual sin still. What does baptism then do for original sin for the Lutheran? It forgives it, and it forgives all actual sins. And so then for the evangelical, we all know that baptism doesn't do anything for anybody. I mean, it does, gratefully, but they don't believe that it does. Yeah, uh, right. No, baptism doesn't do anything. Um, does conversion do something? Uh, you know, the decision for Jesus, what, yeah. is it, what does that do with original sin? I don't know. I've never heard the two touch each other. I mean, so the dry baptism, which right. the evangelical is going to, it, which is the, the uh, mental assenting and belief. It gives them Jesus. Does. Right. Jesus as what? As the forgiver of sins? Definitely. Okay. And the promiser of salvation eternal life okay so so then presumably it would fall out in you know a handful of different ways right one uh yeah it does forgive original sin or yeah i don't know i mean i, I just don't know i i don't have a clue but isn't it great to know like the confessions come along and they they say in the very first article this is man's problem it's not the multiplicity of other things that other people could talk about. This is it. It's not a daddy wound. It's not uh, too much sugar. It's not too much television. It's not any of these other things. Here it is right here. It's original sin. This is man's biggest problem. And will actually, if it's not dealt with, it will damn him. Right. Right, which sets it up for the work of Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and so you can't benefit from Christ Jesus unless you are indeed a sinner. And this is why the two dovetail so nicely between original sin and free will. Free will is what we'll look at next time. Because of original sin, your free will isn't as free as you like to make it out to be. Good, and that's that's a great anticipation for next time. Uh, we will look forward to, to uh, unpacking that uh, when we get together next. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.